guy pretty well. Uh, Josh, thank you for letting me be in the pulpit today. Um, just in light of what Mark said, where are you at, Mark? Just in light of what he said about me, I'll say this. I don't always say what I mean, but I always mean what I say, and I stand by what I said. I stand by what I said. Hey, I just wanted to begin by saying thank you. You guys have been uh, generous, so, so generous to Valley Life Church in Surprise. Uh, one of the first people that I talked to when I thought that God was calling me to plant a church was your pastor, Josh. And we spent a lot of time uh, in your driveway. We would go to meetings in Oklahoma City, and I would sit in his driveway and take up his time. Uh, he's trying to get out of the car, and I'd say, one more thing. What do you think about this? And so uh, I have loved the way that our churches have related to each other as friends. Me and your pastor are friends. Um, uh, I don't know if you know this, but just to give away some church planter uh, insight, is there, there's a lot of churches that want to help a church planter because they get to put the picture on the wall and check a box and say that they're planting a church. And then there's a lot of church planters that look for churches to help them simply because they want your money. And what we have is friendship and a partnership and a relationship. And so uh, the most helpful times have been times that I've been able to call your pastor and say, so elders, how do I do that? Uh, who do I pick? What does that look like? How did that go for you? And he'd say, well, let me tell you about my elder. I'm just kidding. He wouldn't say I mean, he might. I mean, he, he didn't. And if he did, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd tell you. Maybe, I don't know. I might tell you. Anyways, but uh, it's been helpful. This is a helpful partnership, and we're grateful, and we're thankful. And I thought before we begin, I would tell you about some of our baptisms that we've recently had. Um, I, about six months ago, met a lady named Karen. And by the way, it's, what's really cool is I've got, like, people from Ryan. I've got people from Surprise here. I've got members of my church, covenant members of Valley Life Church here just surprised me today. They were coming back on I-40, and it's really good to see the Vigoritos here uh, today. i got my mom here, so like always, if there's, like, a, a photo op that happens while I'm preaching, it was not my idea. I did not sign up for that. Uh, that's just, it's happening right now. Anyway. <laughs> So like when I really get after it and you hear, oh, that's my mom. That's, that's totally her. So anyways, but it's neat to have everybody uh, here today. But I want to tell you about Karen, um, Karen Halleck. We met Karen about six months ago. She was from Alaska and uh, she was uh, strung out on meth and in an abusive and addicted marriage. Her husband was addicted to meth and uh, she, the only way she knew to get away from that was to get out. And she left Alaska and landed in Texas. I don't know how that happens. Um, but anyways, she, she went to stay with her brother who was starting a church down in South Texas. She heard the gospel and believed that. And then as she was leaving Texas for Arizona to get out on her own, her brother told her, I don't think that you uh, should do that. I don't think you should leave here. I think you're running from God. And she said with the little, limited theology she had at the time, God's everywhere. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I don't think I can practically run from him. And so when we met Karen, she was brand new to faith. We've been able to disciple her and see her baptized. We've helped rehabilitate her, get her back on her feet, help her find work when she landed in one of our community groups. And we spent countless Tuesday mornings praying for Karen to find a job and stay sober. And by God's grace, she's walking with Jesus. She's sober. She's working and uh, is at Valley Life Church almost every single Sunday. Um, when I first met, I will tell you about Sheila Dougal. When I first met Sheila Dougal, she had been a part of a church plant. And in our city, church plants come and go. I've told you about, I think last time I was here, how difficult it can be, how hard ground it can be. And I'll get asked sometimes, like, how do you do it? Like five years in, 
how do you still have a church? How is it growing? And I'll say two things. So take notes. And I'll tell them. Cody's heard, where's Cody? He's here somewhere too. My, yeah, there you go. Cody can attest to this. But I'll say, okay, number one, write down, don't screw everything up so bad you have to close the church. They're like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, write that down. Great, number two, don't quit. That's it. That's the two things. Don't mess up and don't quit, and there will be fruit eventually. Um, but anyways, Sheila was a part of a church plant that failed, and she was trying to test this new church that we were when we were still meeting at a school, and she was afraid that we wouldn't be around in 18 months, and I was afraid we wouldn't be around in 18 months. We were all afraid. But uh, when I met Sheila, she was praying that Jesus would save her atheist husband, her atheist oldest son, and then her youngest son, who was just not a Christian. He wasn't necessarily atheist, but he wasn't a Christian. And so we started praying for Sheila's family, and we would pray that Jesus would save Ryland and Connor and James. And then Jesus saved Ryland. And so then we started praying that Jesus would save Connor and James. And then Jesus saved Connor, her oldest son, and we baptized him just a month ago. And now we're praying that Jesus would save James Dougal. And so I'm asking you to join with me that we would pray together that Jesus would save James, who's her, her husband. And so he's watched Jesus transform his whole family and has been a part of our church off and on and has seen that we truly do love Jesus and we truly are for their family. And so we're asking Jesus to save James and I'm asking you uh, to do the same. And so by God's grace, we've been able to baptize more this year. We've doubled baptisms in from what we were at last year and we're thrilled with that and thrilled with what we're able to do. And a lot of that is due to y'all praying with us, helping us financially. Like we're, we, we feel like this church is in the trenches with Valley Life Church in Surprise, and for that, we are uh, grateful. So I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Luke. The book of Luke chapter 10. Luke is one of my favorite books. It's, it's all good material, by the way. It's all really good stuff. But Luke is one of my favorite books because of the way it's written. It's so intense. This guy... Uh, is a detailed guy as he interviewed people and, and wrote uh, this gospel. And so as you're turning there, I just want to lay a foundation before I jump into the text. And I want to talk to you guys about having a, a, a vision or a plan for a strategy for mission in your family. What it looks like for you to live on mission, to care about people who are lost and going to hell unless they respond to the gospel with faith and repentance, what it looks like for you to leverage your money, your time, your hobbies, your relationships, all of that stuff uh, for Jesus. I knew when I first planted Valley Life Church that I had a problem with anybody who was already a Christian or anybody who was already a church person whenever they showed up. And, it, and, and what we found is sometimes it can take about two years to take someone who's a Christian, and put them on mission depending on what background they come from. And my friend Tom, he can attest to what I'm talking about. When we first planted Valley Life Church on our, on our website, you can see that we're a Southern Baptist church. You can see that we're an Acts 29 kind of church. And whenever we say that we're Southern Baptist, I mean, that could mean anything to anybody. But when we say we're Acts 29, that kind of zooms us into a certain kind of theology, a so, certain soteriology, a reform-type soteriology, a, a, a type of mission, a type of perspective on spiritual gifts and things like that. And so whenever that is on our side and people Google Acts 29 churches in surprise, they're, it's kind of a 50-50 shot when someone would show up to our church. We might have theological alignment. They might be fans of uh, Matt Chandler down at the Village Church who leads kind of our network. And so then they show up to us 
And, and we might have some kind of culture shock when they realize that we're not just some kind of theological fight club. We're not just some kind of people gathered up to check certain boxes. We are trying to have gritty faith and live on mission for Jesus. And I remember uh, one of the first guys that I met was totally, could, we could sit and talk for hours and hours and hours about theology. And he was into Harley Davidson's, which was kind of cool. And so then I had another guy that came into our church that wasn't a Christian at all, and he had a Harley Davidson. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll put these two guys together by affinity. They'll go on some kind of run, whatever they call those things they go on. And then when they come back, this guy will be a Christian. He'll be walking with Jesus. And so I went to my friend the next weekend as we were setting up and tearing down uh, the, the room. Back at that time, we had to roll out benches and all that sort of stuff to have church in a, a school cafeteria. And I asked my friend and I said, hey, man, how did it go last week? And his response to me was, I don't know about that guy. And I was thinking, oh, I totally know about that guy. He's, he's a bad guy. <laughs> he doesn't know Jesus. <laughs> like, why would we? What do you mean you don't know about that guy? And I said, well, tell me what you don't know. He goes, I just don't know about that guy's theology. And I said, I know he has no theology. He's not walking with Jesus. I, put, I paired you guys up together so that you could lead him to Jesus. And his major concern was that this guy isn't theological enough to be running with him. And I realized, man, I've got some work to do. That theological alignment is not going to be enough to move the mission forward as we planted Valley Life Church. And so I constantly bring our people back and Tom, my, Tom and his son could probably stand up and preach this part of the sermon because they probably hear it so much at our church. But Jesus has called us. If you've been saved from hell, if you believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that you are a sinful person. You're sinners by nature and by choice. It's in your DNA. It's who we are and it's what we do. It's what we touch. And for the gospel to be good news, it has to first be bad news. And we realize that we're stuck and ruined in our sins. We cannot save ourselves. And then the good news of Jesus is that he lives a life of perfection without sin. He accomplishes righteousness, not just morality. So morality, moralism, is whenever guilty, bad people do good deeds. But righteousness is when people who are in right standing before God get everything right. And there's only been one guy who's done that, and his name is what? Jesus. Jesus has done that. And so for a Christian, we are someone who trusts, I like to say faith sin, turn faith into a verb. We faith in Jesus. In his life, he lived a righteous life, accomplishing righteousness, and he gives the credit for everything that he did right to anybody who would trust in that work. And then he goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sins and because of our sins. Because he dies, he, he atones for the wrath of God. There is no be cool man approach to sin in the throne room of heaven. Because we have sinned, someone had to die. It's supposed to be us, but Jesus goes in our place, absorbs the wrath of God against sin. So with Jesus' life, he accomplishes the righteousness requirements that are needed to have a friendship or a family relationship with God. With his death, he accomplishes our forgiveness so that our sins can be paid for in full. And with his resurrection, he accomplishes victory over Satan, sin, and death. And so I'm an oversimplifier, and I see three things that Jesus has saved us from two and four. He saved us from hell. Like, really, I feel the weight of that. I deserve hell by the things that I've thought, done, and love. And He saved me from a destination, an eternity separated from God, an eternity in hell. I believe that with all my heart. 
And I believe that He saved me to the church. There's no rogue Christianity. It's just not me and a podcast and a, and a Spotify playlist of Chris Tomlin getting down with Jesus by myself. Like, I'm saved to a church. Whether I like it or not, Valley Life Church, that's my people. Jesus has saved me to those people, and we're together. There's the church all over the world. There's the church local. And if He saved you from hell and you're a part of this church, He saved you to this church. This is your family. And I think if we're not careful, we leave it there. We're saved from and we're saved to. We kind of leave it alone. But we're also saved for the mission of Jesus. To leverage our relationships, our, friends, our, our finances, our hobbies, all that sort of stuff for the mission of Jesus. And so at our church, we talk a lot about the two mandates that we see in Scripture. The cultural mandate and the missionary mandate. The cultural mandate is found in Genesis, uh, the first couple of chapters, when God creates Adam and Eve, and they get to be naked, and it's not weird, and it's awesome, okay? And then they sin against God, sin enters the world, and then nakedness is weirdness, and I totally get it now. You know, it's, it's weird now. So anyways, they sinned against God, they broke the world, we have a curse, our bodies fail, our hairlines go backwards, our waistlines get bigger, all that sort of stuff. Because we have broken bodies in a broken world, and because of our cosmic crimes, our treason against God, we deserve sin. But, in the midst of all that story and narrative, God has given us a, a mandate that we would take the earth and be fruitful, multiply, fill it, and subdue it. And, and whether you love Jesus or not, all human beings vocate one way or another. Or should, if, the, if you don't, you should. Some, we're supposed to take the dirt and turn it into ranches. Take the dirt and turn it into wheat pasture. Take the dirt and turn it into iPads and iPhones and technology. And take the dirt and turn it into homeschool, charter school, public school, private school, skip school. I don't care. Do something about education. Turn it into knowledge. Take the dirt and turn it into culture. Make music and the arts and all of that stuff. Take the dirt, take this world, and let's make it better. Leave it better than how we found it. We've built cities. My city only exists because of air conditioning. Someone made air conditioners so we can now live in Phoenix without dying. Okay? I, my favorite movie is Tombstone. I, still, I don't know how in the world people st st stood it that long before the air conditioner. Anyways, so I think in our perspective, we love Jesus, we get saved, we, get, we find a church, we get jobs, we uh, raise kids, we send them to college, we pick careers, we do all of this sort of stuff. And then if you're like me, I kind of grew up thinking that mission is what the socially awkward people went and did in Africa. Like, I don't know if you had, like, I grew up in a church where we had, like, Mission Sunday, and then the weirdest people would come to the church and show us slideshows about people that were missing limbs, you know, and had, had gut rot and all kinds of stuff, and they would just sit back and tell us the scariest stories about living in the scariest places. And I thought mission was, if you're really weird, you can't hack it here, we send you overseas, and you just go live in a village somewhere, and you come back once a year and show us pictures of your life. Okay, so who, who knows what I'm talking about? All right. Thank yes. I thought that's what mission was. And so I thought, that, so we're saved and then we're set apart. And I kind of grew up in this culture to where my friend, me and Josh were teasing about this, told him I was bringing him a shirt. And he was like, what kind of shirt are you bringing me? And so like I grew up, like my friends in high school wore Abercrombie and Fit shirts. And we would wear like a breadcrumb and fish, you know, because we were Christian cuteness, you know. But as I got older, I started realizing we, something is weird about this that we're living in. Like this is so... So I don't know where you stand on Michael Jackson, but you can't argue. That was good music, right? 
Jackson 5, who can ride with the Jackson 5? Go with Thriller. I know then beyond, it got really weird. Sorry about that. But it's good music. And then who knows who Weird Al is? You know who Weird Al is? So Michael Jackson would write a song called Beat It. Weird Al would write a song called Eat It, you know? And just wear a fat suit, all that sort of stuff. We'd laugh at it. And as I would look back on like 80s Christianity, it's like we would just take culture and make a parody of it. We would make a parody of whatever mainstream culture would do. And um, I heard this story. Martin Luther gets quoted as saying it. I don't think he actually said it, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it because I love the principle. But he would say that the Christian shoemaker doesn't best do his job when he puts little crosses on a shoe, but a Christian shoemaker does his best job whenever he makes really good shoes. Okay? And so, so here's where, where I'm going with this. As we look in Luke chapter 10, we are called to a cultural mandate. We are called to be set apart. But the thing that's supposed to most mark us as God's people is not just that we're really successful in business and we don't go to the movies, at least not in public, you know. What marks us is a compassion for people that are going to hell, a compassion for people that, need their, that have needs, and this idea of mission that we are leveraging our resources and all sorts of things and using them in a way that are different than everyone else in the culture. I heard C.S. Lewis uh, speak one time about generosity and giving, or I didn't hear him speak, I read it, something that he said. And he said that if, if your life looks the same as your friends who don't love Jesus, you're in the same tax bracket, you're eating at the same restaurants, taking the same vacations, you have the same size house, everything looks exactly like those who are not walking with Jesus, then you are greedy and stingy. Because you should have things that you cannot afford to do because you're funding the mission of Jesus. There are things that should be different about our life. That's just a financial application. There should be things that are different about our weekends, things that are different about how we use our living, or our living room and our kitchen table and all that sort of thing. And so in Luke chapter 10, um, I already preached a sermon, sorry. Luke chapter 10, uh, if we only had Luke chapter 9, if we didn't have Luke chapter 10, then we would think that mission is a vocation. It's for those who are W-2'd by mission boards and local churches and all that sort of stuff because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes his 12 disciples and he sends them out on a similar mission, tells them to go and pray for the sick, heal the sick, preach the gospel, all that stuff, and come back and tell him how it goes. But then in Luke chapter 10, he gathers up 72 people. We don't know their names. They're followers of Jesus. They're disciples of Jesus, but they're not apostles of Jesus. They're not writing books of the Bible. You know, these, these are people following him around. And he commissions them and he sends them out on mission. This is kind of like a trial run before he sends Holy Spirit to the church in Acts chapter 2 and then commissions us all out to go. But this is like a little, a little picture of what mission looks like. It's a little pilot test. Some of you in business or maybe even church, you've piloted discipleship programs or piloted things. This is a pilot mission uh, test for mission. So look with me in Luke chapter 10 and we'll see some strategies for mission for our families. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. We don't know this for sure, but as, if you go back to the table of the nations in Genesis chapter 10, uh, it's believed that there's 72 nations represented. And so what we're catching here from what Jesus is saying is this is a global mission. Like what he's calling us to is a global mission with local expressions. And so my church in, in Surprise looks a little different than your church here. And, and I got to go to Israel about a month ago, and the churches in Israel look quite a bit different from our churches here. Like I didn't see anywhere to plug in a guitar, but I think they still love Jesus. I think they're doing, they're doing fine. So it's a global mission with a local expression. He appointed 72 others, just the others, 
like y'all, others like you, others like me. We don't know their names. And he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That is not a killer halftime speech, okay? But it's truth, and the truth will set us free. So before I talk to you about missionary tactics that Jesus is going to give the 72 once we get into verse 4, I want to talk to you about the nature of mission, the nature, the essence of what it's like to live on mission for Jesus. And when I say mission, the idea of making disciples and planting churches, the missionary mandate. The cultural mandate is multiply, fulfill the earth, subdue it. And the missionary mandate is go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching all the things that Jesus taught, and He promises that He'll be with us as we do it. And so there's three things that I see in these first three verses that I just want to pull out, and, then, and I want to move quickly because... I took a lot of time in my intro, and so, and I've got 45 minutes, and you're going to get hungry and all that sort of stuff, so I'm going to do my best to move quickly. But the three things that I see here at the, with the nature of the mission that Jesus is calling them to, and it has implications for us, is number one is friendship. That friendship is vital. Friendship is important. And I don't just mean friends about uh, cattle, friends about horses, friends about football, friends about, I'm not talking about affinity, I'm talking about mission. Someone in the trenches, like gritty faith, like car wreck. We lose our kids and we stand on the promises of God together. We're in the thick of it. Like kids who heard the gospel, we thought they loved Jesus, now they've expressed that they have no faith and we're praying and there's people that are going to come around us and we're in the trenches, not scared by circumstances, not shaken, but faith-filled, true to Jesus and true to one another. He pairs them up two by two, friends about Jesus, friends about mission. When you're friends on mission and not just friends about affinity. See, when you're friends about affinity, friendship works out until someone wounds each other with their words and deeds and now we can't be friends anymore. What we'll say is it's okay, but then we unfollow them on Facebook. Not unfriend them because we don't want to make it weird. We just unfollow them, you know, so we don't have to see their face anymore. We don't answer them. Their text messages back. My daughter would say you leave them on red. They can see that you read the text, but you don't reply, Okay. You're welcome. You didn't know that, did you? Friends about Jesus. When we're friends about Jesus, we can be shoulder to shoulder naming our sin rather than face to face blaming each other. And if you're going to live on mission, it, you're going to get tired. Paul writes to the churches at Galatia and says, don't grow weary in doing good. If you keep it up, you'll have a harvest. Why does he have to tell them not to grow weary in doing good? Because you'll get weary when you're doing good. Mission is hard work and you need friends. By God's grace, I have 25-year friendships. By God's grace, Cody's put up with me for 15 years. And I've got friends in there. i got Dustin. i got Nick in this room. And I think we've been friends for almost 20 years, 18 years, a long time. It's been a long time. And we're not all still friends because we've never hurt each other's feelings. We're still friends because at the center of the friendship is Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. And it helps keep you at 30,000 feet in perspective and to believe that my friends are not the things that they have done. They are who Jesus says they are. And, and for me, for them to look in my life and say, well, Jason isn't the things he... I mean, he can be a knothead. We're going to talk to him about it. But he's most defined by what Jesus has done in his place. Okay? You need friends if you're going to live on mission. And we are called to a burden a burden for the lost. He's praying. He's, he feels the weight of the work that's to be done. 
And he's not questioning the harvest. He's questioning if there's enough laborers. So mission should most shape our prayers. Third, we are called to conflict, not comfort. Moms, write that down. And tell that to your kids. So most recently preached this in context of a parenting series where we talked about raising our kids to live on mission. And that the missing piece of a parenting strategy is often the missionary piece. And so I want you to see that as you're called to be a Christian, you're called to engage culture and engage your friends, engage your neighbors, engage your coworkers. You're called to conflict, not comfort. It's not a comfortable thing to ask someone, do you want to be a Christian? It's going to stretch you a little bit. And when we push back darkness, darkness pushes back on us. And I and simply just don't want us to think that there's some strange things that's happened to us when people are against us for standing with Jesus. Jesus says here, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. In other words, you're going to experience conflict. It's part of it. When conflict comes, if you're like me, you're prone to say, what is wrong? What am I doing wrong? What did I say wrong? What did I preach wrong? When people don't like it, when people want to leave, whenever friends want to turn away from the truth that was spoken, whenever I offend someone, what did I get wrong? And sometimes I'm reminded like it's doing its work. It's doing its job. Like truth sets us free and sometimes truth gives us enemies. So that's the nature of mission. In verse 4, through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see some missionary tactics. Missionary tactics. Right away, Jesus tells the 72 to not carry any money bags, no knapsacks, no sandals, and not to greet anyone on the road. Now, this can look like, uh, you know, literally, he's telling them not to carry this stuff, okay? And walking around Israel for 10 days, I understand why. You don't want to carry much because you're constantly moving. And man, I, I was really glad we had a bus when I was there. They didn't have buses when Jesus was telling this. I guess they could have took and ca- taken camels. But I think the principle here is to live with urgency. Live with urgency. He's literally talking about an itinerant mission where they're going to go into a city, stay with someone for a few days, come back and see how it went. But as we live in Comanche or Jefferson County or Maricopa County in Arizona, we need to live with urgency and we need to travel light. I don't mean literally. Jesus means literally travel light here. But I think the principle that we can gather around here is like, hey, there's a lot of things you need to hold with open hands. And there are some things you need to hold with really closed hands. And whatever those things are, you should live and die by them. But for for example, we should live and die by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. There are plenty of things to debate. There are plenty of things to divide over. All that's good and right. But then we can hold a little more openly than our live and die, our politics. We can hold a little more openly like our, whether it's the Sooners or the Cowboys or whoever that is. And horns down, that was awesome yesterday, by the way. What, you know, I didn't say we don't care at all. We just care open-handedly. Like there are, and, and if I've seen anything, if I've seen anything thwart mission, it's when the things we're supposed to have our hands tightly around start to loosen up and open up. And the things that we're supposed to hold a lot looser than we do, we start to hold on tightly to. And the next thing you know, we're dividing up over things that are supposed to be secondary or tertiary things compared to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And it's hard. It's easy to amen that as long as one of your little pet things isn't, isn't being threatened, you know. But it's difficult. I think that's what Jesus is telling him. And that's why I think he says not to greet somebody on the road because it's going to seem like it contradicts. He's going to say, don't greet on the road, but then go to someone's house and stay there a while. Okay, And I think what he's saying here is when people, not 
arguments. I think the application for our culture, or let me look in verse 5 with me. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return back to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So he says, don't go house to house. Don't greet on the street, but whenever you find a place, and if you guys get along, if they welcome you there and take good care of you, settle in there and stay there for a while. And I think what he's saying here is win people, not arguments. This, like the, the, the best place for discipleship, the best place for true discussions, if it is about politics or sports or whatever, the best place to talk about our idols and sin and the, the resurrection of Jesus is I think it's living rooms and kitchen tables. I don't think it's Twitter and Facebook or the, even just the um, water fountain at work. I think it's friendship. What Jesus is emphasizing here is friendship, relationship, relationships with some kind of roots. The mission is deeper than small talk. I think that's what he's saying here. Community is the word. That's the buzzword of our time. The fertile ground for, for mission is found in community, your neighbors, your family. Those that you have roots with, those who you know, and they know you. Verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. If you're going to walk with Jesus and follow him into other people's lives and plead with God to save them and have engaging conversations with them about the gospel, flexibility is a requirement. Flexibility is a requirement. If it is the gospel that unites people rather than affinity, it's important to be a person who can stretch and not snap. Man, when I was in Israel, I don't know if I want to eat any more hummus for the rest of my life. Cody, how about you? You get all the hummus you can, you can stand? There's plenty of hummus. I don't like hummus, but when they set hummus in front of me, I dipped my flatbread in the hummus, and I ate the hummus. When they put the fish in front of me with the eyeballs on it, I ate the fish. I didn't eat the eyeballs. I left those. But I ate it, and, I, and I, there was everything inside of me wanting to say, y'all aren't doing it right. You're just not doing it right. I don't know if you've ever been a friends with someone. You just constantly feel like you're not doing it right. You're doing it different than me. This is where if we can know clearly what is supposed to be in the open hand and what is supposed to be in the closed hands, it helps us find where we can flex, where we can stretch, or where we can snap. If we're going to be a global movement with local expressions and not a local expression to be replicated all over the globe, then we are going to have to be a flexible people, okay? A flexible people as we make friends with people. We're going to have to expect lost people to act like lost people. We're not going to act like lost people, but we're going to expect them to act like lost people. We're not going to try to fix. So, so to apply that to my buddy that, that was into Harleys and Martin Luther, he needed to also be flexible to understand this person who's not a Christian clearly cannot think like Luther yet. Let's love this guy into the kingdom, and then let's tell him about those 99 problems he nailed on the wall that one time. Verse 9. Heal the sick in that home, in that house, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you, which is boldness. He's telling them to be bold. Help people, meet their needs, help people, and give the credit to Jesus. When someone asks you, why did you do that? Because I followed Jesus. He would want me to help you. And so here's, here's the thing. Here's what I noticed like, oh, here's what's supposed to be different about me and my family. So I, I grew up in a McGee and me culture. I don't know if you know that, if that makes any sense to you. The McGee and me culture, the what would Jesus do bracelet culture, all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying I didn't get it. I didn't get mission. 
I totally thought that we were supposed to be the weirdest people in the world. Like we would use Ned Flanders cuss words. Everyone else would cuss. We would talk like Ned Flanders. We weren't even supposed to watch The Simpsons. I can't believe mom, dad, you let me do that, that I would even know who Ned Flanders is. But we were so, supposed to be so disengaged from culture and just stand out so much and be so weird that eventually someone would walk up to me, Josh, and be like, why are you so weird? And I'd say, Jesus. And they'd say, I want to be weird just like you. And so in my culture, I tell our people, you know, you, you trim all your shrubs and you rake all your rocks because we don't have grass in our yards unless, unless you don't mind paying all that water bill. But you, you just do good at work. You, get, perform, you outperform everybody. You're different than everybody. You don't hang out with anybody. And eventually somebody comes to you and says, what's your trick? What's your strategy? And then you say, Jesus, well, I want some of that too. And what he's showing us here is the thing that's supposed to mark us, that we're supposed to be different, is that we're a people of compassion. We're a people who are flexible. We're a people who our Saturdays open up when people need to move. We're a people whose budget opens up whenever somebody is sick and they need help and they need food. We're a people who when we hear about a family that, that can't pay a bill, we're, we're going to help them out. Whenever we hear about someone that has a need, we're going to meet that need. We're a people of compassion. Jesus is a compassion guy. We are a compassionate people. The thing that's going to most mark us is our selflessness. That's what's going to most mark us. And when we do that, he says, be bold and tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. When you help your friends move, tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you because this wasn't my idea. Clearly, I'd rather watch the game. This was Jesus' idea. All right? Love Jesus and get compassionate. Don't love Jesus and get weird. Okay? Verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust from, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe it off against you. That is the most savage insult, by the way, and it came from Jesus. It's kind of cool. Savage. That's another one of my kids' words. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Notice that? When there's results, when there's repentance and faith and worship, in response to compassion, he says, tell them the kingdom of God has come near. And then he tells the missionaries as well, when they reject you, also know the kingdom of God still came near. It isn't that you got it wrong. It isn't that you were missing pieces. It isn't that if you would have told more jokes or been more witty, that it would have been more powerful. He's telling you, hey, it's working. It's working. And then he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Sounds like Wyatt Earp and Tombstone, don't it? The one who hears you, this is powerful. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me sent, rejects him who sent me. The gospel is powerful. And it leads to two powerful response, responses when we share the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in our place for our sins. The two responses, number one, is repentance. Repentance. Notice that he says, those who hear you. And so he's emphasized a lot of demonstrating the gospel and a lot of compassion. And it's so, on, it, you know, it's so assumed, I don't want us to miss it though because it's assumed. He says, let the one who hears you. 
When you start talking about the kingdom of God, you start telling the gospel. I heard someone say uh, that phrase about share the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's like feed the starving children and if necessary, use food. You know, it's ridiculous. The gospel is, is most powerful when it is declared. And so what he's saying is when you declare it, when you speak it, when they hear you, Talk about the kingdom that's near. There's two responses. Number one is repentance. And repentance is whenever you are being changed by the Bible. You're bending your life around Jesus. You have two options. The other option is that you change your Bible or pretend it doesn't say what it said and you bend Jesus around your life. That is actually rejection. And you can reject the gospel while sitting right there. You can be right here and reject the gospel. And to those who are declarers of the gospel, to you and to me, I want you to prepare yourself for the rejection, as Jesus tells us to prepare ourselves. And to know that rejection is not failure. When you share the gospel with someone and they don't believe, you have not failed. The only failure would be not sharing the gospel at all. And it is our job to share the gospel, and it's Jesus' job to judge people. We can feel that they'll never believe. Only Jesus knows if they'll believe or won't. Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of men and women in the way that he talks about Tyre and Sidon. And then the 72 return with joy and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw, and so he, he combats that with, hey, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority and tread, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. And so we get to have joy in the mission. Like that is the, that is the essence of the gospel here, that your names are written down in heaven. Enjoy that. What does that mean? First of all, we can enjoy that people will be changed. People will repent. You have friends that want to be Christians. They are waiting for you to say, do you want to be a Christian? They really are. And there's joy because the power comes from Jesus' performance and not our own. I want you to notice that as they come back, here's, here's the way I imagine this. I imagine that some of the 72 come back and they are just exhilarated. They cannot believe this. They saw crazy things like when Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and ran them off the cliff or whatever. Like they were just coming back like, man, we're going to plant all kinds of churches. We're going to start a speaking tour. Like we're going we're to we're start a worship collective. This is going to be killer. It's going to be awesome. And Jesus has to tell them, hey, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And he was saying stuff real similar to this when that happened. Settle down, man. Be humble. It, your name is written in the book of life whether you had all that success or not. Your name is written in the book of life. It's not based on what you can get done. It's based on what, ah, not me, I'm the preacher. What Jesus, I'm imagining Jesus saying this, what Jesus can accomplish. And then I imagine some of the 72 coming back with their tails whipped and just feeling like, man, I, got, I literally got whipped in that town. Like someone whipped me and beat me up and said, I'm blaspheming Moses. And someone else, I prayed for them. I prayed for their sick family and nothing happened. And, and I went and I talked to this guy about Jesus and they wouldn't believe. And I imagine some of them, and they come back and he says, hey, your name is written in the book of life. You didn't get out there to impress me. I sent you out 
you guys aren't going out there as the heroes of the story. You're going out there telling everyone else who the hero is, and that's Jesus. And that's the thing for us to remember is that our names are written down. And here's what I want to leave us with is this, that grace should motivate. Grace should motivate us. If we remember what we're saved from, the hell that we deserve because of our sins, then we can be motivated to what we're saved for. And when we gather in the church, we can do these things. And I'll leave us with this. Four things about missionary living. I get told that I'm not real easy to take notes to. And I always say, I'm probably not going to change. But here's a list, okay? The list is going to help you. Here's a list, okay? Tom laughs because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Here's a list. Number one, out of what we've heard, make mission one of the things, if not the thing, that we are most concerned about in our family. Just yesterday, I'm texting my wife, Carrie. Some of you met her, and we're just talking about, are we really most concerned with mission. Almost any time we have trouble with our kids or we have trouble with our money, or we have trouble with any relationship going on, we can usually see where we've drifted away from mission. And if we would just get on mission, it kind of sorts everything else back out. Who knows what I'm talking about? We need to be going in a destination. We need to be traveling somewhere in these relationships with our money, with our time, with the way that we're raising our kids. Make mission one of the things we're most concerned about. You're concerned about your taxes and your money and if your cattle are well and you're concerned about your kids and if the team's going to win and how things are going and how are those grades and what's the bottom line at in your business and am I going to get promoted? What are the things that you think about, that you pray about? What are the things you're worried about? Where has your mind drifted even this morning uh, that, that has something I said may have reminded you of something stressful that's going on? That's something that you're concerned about. Put at the top of that the mission of Jesus, that friends around you who are lost, that don't know Jesus, that without the good news of Jesus, they are bound for hell. Make mission what we're most concerned about. Number two, make mission what we most celebrate. Anytime there's a baptism in our church, I want, I'm pulling my kids and bringing them into the big room. We pull all of our kids' ministry out from the back, and we're all in there, and we're celebrating. Once a month, we bring everybody out, all the kids. I think you guys do that every week, but once a month, we aspire to be like you. And we bring all of our kids out into the big room. We want them to celebrate with us what Jesus has done. At our kitchen table, I want to celebrate when I talk to one of my friends about the gospel. And whether they accept or reject, I want my kids to hear that I'm having those conversations. And I want you to do the same with your family. Number one, make mission what we're most concerned about practically. Number two, make mission one of the things that we most celebrate in our homes. Number three, make mission most shape our prayers. As we're praying for people to be well, as we're praying for those promotions at work, as we're praying for God to give us all those gifts and change all those circumstances that we're asking Him to change, let us also pray for our friends who don't know Jesus. Let us pray as we prepare for Thanksgiving that's coming up. As we prepare for, if you do Halloween and give out Snickers to kids dressed up, whatever you do, do it with mission in mind. That's the last thing. Make mission the lens through which we see everything. So I tell my people, go hit, get a hole in one at golf. Do it. I'm not saying golf is dumb. I'm just saying Jesus didn't live, die, and race from the dead for your golf game. I'm for it. Tom, get after it. I love it. And I tell our families, get in Little League. Get out, win championships. Go to Florida. 
Spend all that money on a plane ticket for, your, for the eight-year-old Super Bowl, you know? They, you, they do it. Get after it. I, that's okay. Do it. Chase grades. Get into that college. Do all that stuff. Cultural mandate yourself till you're tired and go to bed. But do every bit of it through the lens of mission. Every bit of it through the lens of mission. Let mission most inform how the cultural mandate is played out in your life. Let me pray. Father, I love you. I'm so thankful for Meridian Church. I'm so thankful for Josh King. Thankful for the friendship and the gospel partnership that we have. I'm thankful that you do save our friends when we ask you to. I'm thankful, Lord, for the life and light I see in Sheila Dougal's eyes as you one by one are saving the men in her home and we beg you to save James. Father, I pray for those who feel the powerlessness like the 72 that came in and couldn't even find a home to stay in. They couldn't even find a person of peace. I pray that we would celebrate that that doesn't mean the gospel is powerless. It's still doing its work. The same truth that brings in family members is the same truth that drives out and sometimes, unfortunately, makes enemies. God, I pray that we could celebrate that you've written our names down in the book of life, not based on our performance, not based on how smart we are or gifted we are, but based on the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we could remember back to who we were and what we've been saved from, not that we would taste the shame or the guilt, but just that we could remember. It's always good to remember where you come from so you can enjoy where you are and look forward to where you're headed. And so, God, I pray that that would be who we are, that we are a people most impacted by how you've saved us, from where you've saved us, to what you've saved us, the church, and the mission that you've saved us to. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.